Okay, so uh, here's Carol Lefebvre. Uh, I got a bio here, but I. I'm he can't sorry. read. No, can't read. It's, 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 it's in English. I can't read that. Stuff. <laughs> so uh, I've known Carol 25 years and uh, um, met her, I think, the first time in 1993. I think, if I remember right, maybe 94. Mm -hmm. A long time now. But Carol's a founder member of the Cochrane Collaboration, as it was then. And as, as far as I know, she was the, the only information officer at the original... Uh, mm, probably, meeting, yep. The meeting in Oxford. <coughs> that started it all. Um, Carol's very uh, precise. She's incredibly organised and she keeps everybody on their toes. And uh, this is, I think, an essential quality for somebody who does a job. She was also uh, information officer, senior information specialist at the Cochrane Centre for 20 years. Uh, she now does uh, consultancies and supports people like us trying to do the, our, the best we can with uh, systematic reviews. Carol and I recently collaborated in, a, in that uh, uh, Cochrane project that I showed you the, the, uh, this afternoon. I showed you the uh, results of the survey um, showing little, very little uptake of uh, regulatory data in everyday uh, Cochrane work. Uh, don't forget that you were going to ask um, Carol about the update of the handbook. <laughs> what a delight. I thought, I thought this was an opportunity to get away from the handbook for half an hour, but there you go. <laughs> was I wrong? <laughs> thank you very much, Tom. Uh, thank you for the introduction. Uh, thank you to you and Kamal for inviting me to um, this evening's event. And uh, thank you, Natalie, for all your support um, in the administration. Um, you'll have seen that today's uh, lecture is entitled The Shifting Evidence Paradigm from Literature to Data. Can I just check that those of you at the back of the room can hear me well? It's never usually a problem, let's put it that way. Okay, that's good. Okay, well, let me just say a few words about the trials and tribulations of pre-dinner speaking. Um, I'll get that out of the way. Uh, I, I know that I'm what's brought you out of the bar or away from your drinks outside even uh, on an evening such as this. And I know that I'm all that rests between you and dinner. I am aware of both of those things. Uh, and it's not an auspicious start, it has to say. Um, but the one thing that Tom didn't say about me is that I always finish on time. So... Um, I have been allocated a certain amount of time for this and we have been allocated time for questions and discussions afterwards. Um, so uh, please be reassured that, that you will get to your dinner in time. I'm going to start with some declarations of interest. For, for those of you who do know me or have come across my name or whatever, you will undoubtedly associate me with Cochrane for the reasons that Tom has suggested. Um, I have been a founder member of Cochrane since 1992. Uh, when Cochrane started, there were about eight or nine of us. And there are now something like, like 50 to 100,000 people involved in Cochrane. Um, but there was uh, the, uh, the uh, director of the Cochrane Centre, Sir Ian Chalmers, who was an obstetrician. There was a clinical pharmacologist, uh, Andrew Herxheimer. You may have come across his name too. And I was the only other professionally qualified member of staff. So that was how Cochrane was in those days in 92. And what I'm going to be talking about today, I'm going to be talking a bit about how we've moved on. I'm going to be talking about this shift paradigm. 
I'm also the co-convener of the Cochrane Information Retrieval Methods Group that advises Cochrane what to do with regard to searching for studies and a member of the Cochrane Methods Executive which advises more widely over methods. Uh, I'm the lead author on the searching chapter of the Cochrane Handbook which has meanwhile morphed to searching and selecting studies within, uh, within the chapter that I'm responsible for and I'll say a little about that later. And as Thomas mentioned, I'm a co-participant in the Cochrane-funded Clinical Study Reports project of which he was the PI. And many, many other hats, I've no doubt. But I think the key thing is, the key elements of this slide is what, are what uh, is written on the bottom. I'm no longer employed by Cochrane and haven't been since 2012. I'm not employed by our publisher either, Wiley. So what you hear today is an independent view and an independent voice. So, as you'll be aware from uh, your programmes, this evening's presentation will address the shift in focus over the last 20 years away from purely literature searching, that is only searching databases such as Medline or PubMed for the published literature, such as journal articles and books, for identifying studies for evidence synthesis. She will consider the ever-increasing role of unpublished data sources such as trials registers and regulatory agency sources. So that was my brief. So I'm going to start with some definitions. Tom said I was very precise. Um, and yes, I, I do like to be precise. So starting with some definitions of literature, grey literature and data. So let's start with literature. Um, literature is defined in the Oxford English Dictionary's definition as written works, especially those considered of superior or lasting artistic merit, books and writings published on a particular subject. So the bottom line is that literature is published sources, for example, journal articles and books. But within literature, we have different types of literature, one of which is grey literature. And grey literature, therefore, is a subset of literature and generally when people talk about grey literature they're talking about dissertations, theses, reports and so on. And I won't go through the slide in detail, I, I think that Natalie intends to make the slides available to the participants after the event, um, so you don't need to take lots of photographs, you will get the originals. Um, but grey literature is defined as that which is produced on all levels of government, academics, business, etc, etc, but which is not controlled by commercial publishers. And then they went on a few years later to amend the definition to say not controlled by commercial publishers where publishing is not the main primary activity of the producing body. So grey literature is published but it's not published by somebody whose main aim is publishing. So uh, for example a thesis is published by Oxford University but the University of Oxford doesn't exist to publish theses or to publish anything else. So grey literature is published, it just simply happens to be grey. But what about data? What about this shift that there is from literature searching, the phrase that we all used to use so much? And I'll mention it now in case I forget. This is a deviation into the handbook. The searching for studies chapter in the handbook runs to about 100 pages and it's entitled originally searching for studies, now searching for and selecting studies, but the main focus is searching for studies. In that, sec in that whole chapter on searching for studies, running to 100 pages, how many times do you think we use the word literature searching? How many people think it might be over 50? Okay, how many people think it might be between 20 and 50? The phrase literature searching. 
How many people think it might be between 5 and 20? How many people think it might be between 0 and 5? Yeah, well done, you guys. It's a, it's a phrase that I am trying to stamp out because literature searching is such a small part of what we do. And I'm, I'll be going on to say that literature searching is important. It's still important to search databases such as Medline and Embase and so on. But literature searching is not the whole story. And we shouldn't just glibly use this phrase literature searching when what we're really talking about is identifying studies for systematic reviews and other evidence syntheses. So so that brings us back nicely to data. Data are data. And the Oxford English Dictionary definition for that is facts and statistics collected together for reference or analysis. So data are published, are available in the published literature. Obviously, if you do a Medline search and you find a journal article, it may well have data. Data may be published in someone's thesis or dissertation, in which case it would be data from the grey literature. But data are also available in unpublished sources. And the unpublished sources that are probably most important for identifying studies for systematic reviews would be trials registers, clinical study reports, which Tom has started going through with you on the programme today and will continue tomorrow, and regulatory agency documents. So looking at this in a Venn diagram format, you have literature. And within literature, you have, published, you have published literature. And within published literature, you have grey literature. And as we know, there's a vast amount of, of literature that has no data in it whatsoever. It doesn't, there doesn't have to be any data in literature. But some in the central section there, some literature will contain data. But there are vast amounts of data outside of all of this literature. So the areas that I was just talking about, the areas of trials registers, clinical study reports and regulatory documents, they are not published. And it's that that we need to focus more heavily on. But um, that's not to say that the published literature is not important. And you'll have seen from the programme that your course is addressing this week that um, unless the, 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 last, the most recent version of the programme has changed, but the programme that I received today, you were hearing from Tom and Kamal, uh, reviews of unpublished date, data searching for unpublished data and regulatory data. And then tomorrow, you'll be hearing from Naya Roberts about searching for published data. So this programme that you're attending this week is recognising both the published and the unpublished data. And of course, um, qualitative evidence syntheses, which I think you're addressing on Thursday, they may extend beyond what we generally call data into other areas of information which are relevant for um, qualitative syntheses or rather syntheses of qualitative data more exactly. So what about this shifting evidence paradigm from uh, literature to data? There has been a shift in focus over the last 20 years from purely literature searching, that is searching only databases such as Medline, PubMed, Embase and so on. And there has been a considerable shift towards unpublished sources of data in line with their development and access. And I've started this in 1992 because this is when I started in this area when I first joined Cochrane. And in, in those days, there were practically no trials registers, no general trials registers, no company-specific trials registers that were available uh, outside of their own companies. But there were a few uh, registers within cancer. 
And um, my colleague Ian Chalmers, the director of the UK Cochrane Centre, worked very closely with the drug company Sharing. And eventually in 1997, Sharing declared that they would provide detailed, uh, outline details of 30 of their trials. And you may think, wow, big news. But I can tell you in 1997, that was enormously big news. And we wrote an article, we couldn't avoid the pun of Sharing is Sharing too. Um, but we wrote an article in Cochrane News to announce this, what we felt was a monumental event at that time. GlaxoSmithKline followed suit in 1998 and also in 1998 the current control trials website was launched, the meta register was launched which unfortunately now is um, under review but the first standard numbering system also came in that wasn't through clinicaltrials.gov that was through current control trials it was the ISRCTN so we eventually had a means of numbering trials so that we could tell which trial was which in multiple publications. And it wasn't until 2000 that clinicaltrials.gov was launched. So for many of you, you have always had clinicaltrials.gov available to you within your professional careers. Um, you probably don't even remember back to a time prior to clinicaltrials.gov, but believe me, there was a time prior to clinicaltrials.gov. And it was four years later that the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors announced their refusal to publish subsequently any reports of trials not prospectively registered. Um, so that was a major contribution by the medical journal editors. And a few years later, the ICTRP, the uh, International Clinical Trials Registry Platform search portal, was launched by the World Health Organization. And that currently brings together 17 separate registers. In 2008, the FADAR law um, came in. It came in, in with effect from 2008, enacted in 2007, and that included a section on clinical trials databases, and it expanded the types of clinical trials. It increased the number of data elements and also required submission of certain results data. And it was that that was really important because you know that when you're doing a systematic review, what you want are the results. You want the data. You don't want information about a trial that's still ongoing necessarily. Uh, it has other uses, I won't say it's not useful, but it doesn't provide data for your meta-analysis. In 2011, Cochrane started looking at standards and we declared that searching trials registers, so to find these unpublished data, we declared that to be mandatory. And we said that you had to search both clinicaltrials.gov and the WHO portal. And we gave the rationale for that, which I'll leave you to look at later when you get the slides. In January 2013, the All Trials campaign was launched, um, founded by Ben Goldacre um, and others, including the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine here in Oxford. Um, and in 2013, GSK established um, a, a clinical study data request initiative. And in December 2013, agreement was reached in principle within the European Parliament that there would be a European Medicines Agency register of all trials carried out in the EU. So that, that was, uh, again, a very important step forward. Again, I'll leave you to read the notes of that when you get the, uh, get the slides. 
In April 2014, um, I, I was thinking about not including this because obviously Tom has already spoken to you today, but it seemed a bit uh, ungenerous to not include it in the major, um, you know, the major steps that have happened, the major developments, the major influences. But I'm not going to say anything more about this because this is the uh, study that uh, Tom has already talked to you about today, the Tamiflu Relenza review based uh, solely on clinical study reports. And there you have the data from that study. Um, I'm not sure whether Tom gave you the URLs for these other pieces of information about that study, but um, that's something that you can follow up later on. And in September 2016, um, the Department of uh, Health and Human Services issued the final rule for clinical trials registration and results information, and that expanded the registration and results information submission requirements. And I, I, I'm not sure whether you've already looked at it today or whether you will be tomorrow, um, but the EMA have started to release clinical data in the form of clinical study reports. When I um, first did some slides that, that were similar to this for something else, in May 2017, they only had 20 CSRs listed. In October 2017, they had 54. And now in June 2018, I, when I checked that today, there were 109. So that's an ever-increasing resource. But that's not to say that everything's working perfectly. There are any number of faults that one could find with, with uh, the majority, if not all of the things that I've put up. I'm not saying we now live in a perfect world. What I'm trying to convey is that the world has changed um, since, um, you know, since 1992 when I started work in this area, as, some, as Tom says, 25 years ago. So uh, within Cochrane, uh, how have we changed um, in, in, in this line? The Cochrane Central Register of Control Trials. Central, you're probably familiar with this from when you search the Cochrane Library. This is the trials register within the Cochrane Library. So um, as I say, the UKCCC, the UKCC was founded in 1992 and I was hired as the information specialist and my first task was to build Central. So the immediate focus was on literature searching, bringing us back to our, to our topic of literature versus data. That is searching bibliographic databases, indexing the published literature, so indexing journal articles. And we were um, uh, focusing first of all on identifying reports of randomised control trials from Medline. And at that time, Matthias Egger, whose name will be familiar to many of you, said that this was clearly the best single source of published trials for inclusion in systematic reviews. Our second focus then was on identifying reports from Embase, again, literature searching, bibliographic databases. But that project has now expanded enormously. It's now done using crowdsourcing, so uh, individual volunteers, a citizen science initiative. Um, text mining and indeed taking text mining to the next level of training the machine, so machine learning to try and optimise the identification of those studies. But from the point of view of today's topic, Central Now also includes unpublished study records from trials registers such as clinicaltrials.gov. So Central also is moving into this area of unpublished studies. So what do other organisations recommend with regard to searching for unpublished and regulatory data? 
ARC uh, in the US uh, recognizes, you'll see that their definition doesn't meet my definition, but you know, you, you can't persuade everybody all of the time. Um, so apart from the fact that, that they use gray literature, I think in the wrong way, I agree with what they say that gray literature, strike the word including, so gray literature, regulatory data, clinical trials, registries and conference abstracts should be searched in addition to bibliographic databases. The Cochrane guidance that, that uh, we're working on at the moment that will be published in 2018 goes into a great deal more detail about regulatory agency data, clinical study reports, and we will be advocating that all are important. And the US Institute of Medicine guidance again says that uh, clinicaltrials.gov, clinical study results, con current control trials, and the WHO portal together with the FDA medical and statistic uh, statistical review records all have a role in um, standards for systematic reviews. So I just wanted to look at some common misconceptions about unpublished data. And let's start with clinicaltrials.gov. You can't believe how many times I've heard people say that it's a US database. Um, it's only got US trials in it. That is just so wrong, and I'll move on to that in a moment. People also say that it's, it's an ongoing trials register. Again, when I finished obliterating the phrase literature search from the universe, I'm going to be moving on to ongoing trials. Okay, ongoing trials exist, but let's not get too hung up about ongoing trials. Every ongoing trial becomes, well, it becomes either, either a completed or a, a stopped early or whatever, but it becomes something else. Ongoing is, is an interim word. Um, and as I say, if you're doing a systematic review, you want to know about in ongoing trials in the sense that you're not going to publish your systematic review if there's an ongoing trial that's going to finish in a month's time and you're going to get the data in three months. You'll hold back. But the whole point about an ongoing trial is that when it's finished, you get the data and you include them in your review. So it's not ongoing trials that are so fascinating. It's trials that are so fascinating. And it's the data from those trials irrespective of whether they're published in um, grey or normal published literature or whether they make their data available in other places. So um, clinicaltrials.gov does not only have data about, uh, have information about ongoing trials. And also people say it doesn't have any results. Well, it didn't on day one, um, but it certainly does now. So taking the first of those, this was taken off the uh, clinicaltrials.gov website earlier today, um, but they only updated it um, five days ago. But you'll see that the percentage of registered studies by location as of June the 20th was 35% only for the US. And even if you put both US and non-US in there, um, you're still you're still only at 40%. So you've got 48% of those are non-US studies. So it is absolutely not a register of US studies only. And the fact that it only has ongoing trials, no. If you again, um, if you look at the, uh, you have the URL there, so you can check all my facts should you wish to do so. Um, you'll see that they have all the different statuses of a study, right from not yet recruiting through recruiting, enrolling by invitation, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right the way through to suspended, terminated, completed, withdrawn. So you've got absolutely the whole life cycle of a study in there. And what I've included um, on, on your slides here is how to find studies with results posted to clinicaltrials.gov.
And today, when I um, last updated these data, there were 31,500 studies with results posted. These are not results from the JAMA or BMJ or whatever. These are results where the principal investigator or somebody on their behalf has posted simply the raw results. So it's a really, really important resource. Common misconceptions about the ICTRP, uh, the WHO resource. Um, you will find all clinicaltrials.gov records by searching the ICTRP because the ICTRP is an overall umbrella to all of these 17 registers. No, that is absolutely not true. The presence of a record within a resource does not equate to its retrievability. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that. There, were, there are fewer data elements in the ICTRP version. There are differences in the search functionality. And there is a time lag in the posting of clinicaltrials.gov records in the ICTRP. For, IC, uh, for clinicaltrials.gov, it's only a week. I think there are probably about five or six of them that are a week. Most of them are four weeks. So if you search the primary resource, you're much, much further ahead than you would be. And it's beyond the scope, and uh, I haven't got time to go into it today, but my colleague Julie Glanville and others um, published a very important piece in the Journal of the Medical Library Association in 2014, um, giving the evidence base as to why you absolutely must search both registers and not rely on just one. So what have we uh, done in Cochrane about um, improving the quality in Cochrane reviews with regard to um, the types of, of, of study that you should be looking for, uh, published and unpublished studies? That's just a little bit of background about the project called Messier Methodological Expectations in Cochrane Intervention Reviews. The vast majority of the, of the um, the standards were produced in 2011-2012 and then updated in 2016 and it allows for us to say that such and such is mandatory which means that if you don't do this in your Cochrane review it won't get published. So I've just pulled out a few of the mandatory standards that relate to searching and that relate to sources. So you'll see we haven't gone completely overboard and said you no longer need to do literature searching. Literature searching of uh, databases such as Medline, Embase and Central, that's still mandatory for Cochrane reviews of the effectiveness of interventions. It's also mandatory to address adverse effects, economics and qualitative research, should they be relevant. It's mandatory to search both clinicaltrials.gov and the WHO portal. It's mandatory to search reference lists and included studies and any relevant systematic reviews. So you'll see that we still have a broad range of both published and unpublished sources that we consider to be important. So what are the facilitators for this shifting evidence paradigm from literature to data? I think it's largely the developments in access to unpublished data, which I've listed above. Um, I think one very particular um, facilitator has been the ICMJ Journal Editor's Declaration, even though it's not always adhered to. And if you do a, um, if you do a literature search in Medline and or Embase, you will find records that, um, of uh, studies that uh, talk about where this has not been adhered to. But I think there is increasing awareness of unpublished sources and there is increasing skills in searching these sources. But what about the barriers to this shifting evidence paradigm? 
Um, unpublished sources are not peer-reviewed. The exclamation mark is for Tom. I put this in specially for him. Uh, a number of times I've heard people say, oh, we don't include unpublished sources in our, in our um, systematic reviews because it hasn't been published in a journal and therefore is not peer-reviewed. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, th there are advantages to peer review if it's done well, but peer review usually involves two or three people who have their own axe to grind and their own areas of ignorance. Um, and on a good day, you might get some helpful comments and they might improve the work. But peer review is not the answer to everything. And it certainly, in my view, is not a reason to discount using unpublished sources. But you hear it all the time. People say, I'm not going to use any of these unpublished sources because they have not been subjected to peer review. They say that trials registers have no usable content for systematic reviews, for example, no results. And I've just shown you, I think it was 31,500 from just one resource. Researchers have no access to clinical study reports. Well, if Tom hasn't made that clear today, he will have done by the end of tomorrow. Um, I don't know whether he's going to get you all to register on the EMA. Um, but uh, <laughs> well, they, there you go then. OK. Um, and again, I'm not saying that's a perfect world, but, you know, it, it's better than it was for or ten years ago and then people say oh well regulatory data they're all secret you know you can't get anything out of the EMA and the FDA well of course you can and that's improving um, all the time so in summary I wanted to say that all relevant data are important in evidence syntheses irrespective of their source and these data may be derived from published sources, such as journal articles, books, etc., i.e. the published literature, or they may be derived from dissertations, theses and reports, um, grey literature. They may be derived from unpublished sources, for example, trials registers, clinical study reports and regulatory agency documents. And all data sources, in my view, have a role to play in evidence syntheses. Some data sources may be more prone to bias than others, and all eligible studies and their data must be assessed for bias. So, returning to the title of today's talk, the shifting evidence paradigm from literature to data, is there a shifting evidence paradigm from literature to data? Well, I think there is, but not yet a paradigm shift. As Tom says, I'm very, very precise. <laughs> but the thing is, you can be part of this shift. Um, you can, when you're doing your systematic reviews back in the workplace, which I assume many of you will be wanting to do, which is why you're on this course. And when you're going to your librarian and you're asking for support in not literature searching, I hope, but identifying studies, you can be more demanding. You can say to your librarian, um, I'd like some help in identifying studies for this systematic review. And if they say, oh, yes, I'll do you a, lit a Medline search, you can say, OK, that will be very nice, thank you. And what else do you propose? And then if they say, oh, well, no, I'm sure that'll be enough, then you can say, well, actually, I'm also interested in unpublished studies. I'm also interested in unpublished data. And can you give me some hints and tips on this and this? So I think you have a role to play in this too.